Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, Lifelong Partners for Financial Education. Learn more about our qualifications on our website www.libf.ac.uk. It's the first of a series that we've been asked to put together on uh, sustainable finance. Sustainable finance is something that we at the CSFI do tend to look at quite frequently because we get huge audiences. They tend to be very young. They tend to be overwhelmingly female. And, you know, we, we, pick, up, we pick up kudos for, 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 for doing this. And, of course, it's terribly important uh, to the survival of the planet. Um, this is the first in a series. In a way, it's, it's, it's the wrong way around. The last of the series is going to be a kind of wrap-up. Uh, but we're starting with uh, the role of carbon markets in, tap- in tackling climate change. It's, uh, it's obviously an important issue. It's one that I don't really understand a great deal about. So I'm delighted that we've been able to put together a rather distinguished panel. It isn't quite as it was in the original invitation. But I'm delighted that we have Louis Redshaw, uh, the CEO and founder of Redshaw Advisors, uh, as our, as it were, kickoff speaker. He's going to give us a sort of 15,000-foot view of, the, uh, of where, of where the, uh, the carbon market industry stands, what motivated uh, governments and individuals to set it up, uh, the role of international uh, initiatives in this, where it stands, what's happened, and... Uh, has it worked and where's it going? And then coming down a little bit, uh, Rachel Ward, head of policy at the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, an ex-civil servant uh, who has spent a great deal of time and effort dealing with the, bureau- the Brussels bureaucracy, whether that's going to be a redundant skill two <laughs> weeks from now or not, I have no idea. My guess is it'll be you know three years from now and we'll still be arguing all these things. And then coming further down, Julia Almgren, a carbon trader who actually does the dirty at Gazprom, where she's worked for more than a, well, more than a decade in roles uh, from business development to portfolio valuation. That's the, the running order. There is um, normally CSFI events are under the Chatham House rule. This is not under the Chatham House rule. It is being recorded. There will be a sort of podcast of it. Uh, but other than than that, there are really no rules. You are encouraged to intervene. You're encouraged to, to have your say. Uh, please just identify yourself if you do. Uh, I'm asking the speakers to speak for 10, 15 minutes apiece. There'll be plenty of time, I hope, for questions, both in between and after uh, they've spoken. But if you do object to what they're saying, throw bread, intervene, shout, whatever. Uh, I'm Andrew Hilton. On the very far left is my colleague, Jane Fuller, if you don't intervene, we will have to. So that's that's what we're all about here. This is, you know, I, I can see I can see one or two people looking askance. I have to be more respectful of sustainable finance, carbon markets, and climate change. I'm sorry. We had a we had a roundtable today at lunchtime on healthy aging, uh, uh, where I was really interested. Um, no, I am interested in this. I promise. I, I swear to God. Um, let me give you Louis Redshaw. Louis, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, yes, I'm afraid I'm not Mark Lewis. Uh, I, um, I've got considerably more emissions trading uh, pedigree, um, much less grey hair um, than, than Mark. Um, and I'm not uh, 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 trying to be rude about uh, the colour of his hair so much as how much he has of it. Um, <laughs> as you know, Mark, he's got quite a mane. Um, and so, so Mark was very kind to um, uh, uh, ask me to fill in uh, for him. And uh, my 
uh, my background in relation to carbon markets is one of an absolute passion for them. Um, I studied environmental technology at Imperial College for a year, specialised in energy policy, and uh, with that degree set out to do something interesting with my life and found that uh, um, uh, that was a, a bit more difficult than the... Um, uh, uh, a bit more difficult than I'd hoped it would be because simply the opportunities to get involved in the kind of things I was interested in hardly existed. So I went the traditional route. I worked in electricity markets, uh, and I helped um, London Electricity <coughs> with its first green energy tariffs, um, or at least sowed the seeds for them. Uh, I moved on to Enron, and I worked uh, in the electricity markets there. And <laughs> Do you want to tell us some of the dirt on Enron? <laughs> was it fun? Uh, well, um, Enron was just the most amazing place to work because it was full of the most fantastically talented people, all trying to make markets work um, uh, in energy. And uh, uh, clearly there were some uh, things it didn't do quite so well. Um, uh, and it, but it fostered a, a spirit of innovation, uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, Is there a sort of old boys and old girls network that um, get together from time to time to discuss... I think there's some um, support group, uh, perhaps. Group, yeah. um, you'd be you'd be you'd be quite impressed with where the diaspora have ended up um, uh, around the world. While clearly Enron didn't do things uh, quite the right way at a at a, at a high level, um, uh, the, the the people uh, went with the sort of confidence of making things happen. Uh, so the, the the entire well, I say the entire a large part of the reason European power markets opened up was because Enron went and bashed the doors wide open and took people to court. Um, uh, so they, they were a, a force for good in terms of uh, deregulating markets and forcing uh, European countries to fulfil their requirements under the various directives. Um, my job there, uh, um, just before the end, was um, starting their renewable energy business, um, which uh, looked to um, uh, take advantage of a, uh, a, a renewable subsidy that was brought into the UK. Um, quite an interesting one. But... Uh, um, uh, I don't want to dwell on Enron, obviously, we're talking about carbon markets, but actually, uh, even at, uh, at Enron, there was uh, a chap called John Parmesano, um, who's quite um, well known in, uh, uh, um, uh, in uh, emissions trading circles, so that would include sulphur as well, and uh, he, um, uh, he worked for Enron, and he, um, uh, he was talking about carbon markets uh, back in uh, the, you know, the 90s, the late 90s. Um, uh, but um, the, uh, the the passion I have for carbon markets came out of university, reading about the Kyoto Protocol, but nowhere to go. Uh, and then the EU, back in 2003, almost out of nowhere, created the EU Emissions Trading Scheme. And that was the uh, fastest uh, piece of legislation to get through the uh, due process in Brussels uh, to become law. Entered into law in um, 2003, and the EU ETS started formally on the 1st of January 2005. And for me... That was my opportunity, to combine something commercial um, uh, with my other passion, uh, which is the environment. Um, being able to incentivise a board to do good for the environment with money is the most powerful, is the most powerful incentive. Um, uh, trying to you know, um, get people to wear hair shirts is a little bit more difficult. So, um, and then command and control clearly um, is, uh, uh, is not efficient. Now, the EU ETS, its, its origins were this piece of legislation. Um, what the EU wanted to do was uh, do a uh, sort of trial run ahead of the Kyoto, first Kyoto commitment period, which is 2008-2012. And um, the trial run was the EU Emissions Trading Scheme Phase 1. And under that scheme, companies uh, were uh, put under a cap, um, a limited number of carbon permits. And for each uh, tonne of CO2 they put in the atmosphere, they had to have one carbon permit or they'd face a fine. 
Um, and so uh, cap and trade um, uh, for carbon emissions was born in Europe, and it was instantly the world's largest cap and trade system of any kind, uh, and certainly of uh, carbon. Um, prior to that, the UK had tried some uh, um, emissions trading type activity, um, uh, but the model was really the sulfur program in the US, where uh, it was found that um, you could reduce sulfur emissions from coal-fired power stations at considerably lower prices than the economists forecast based on the cost of flue gas desulfurisation. Um, can I just check something about the terminology? Yes. It's called a cap-and-trade. So does that mean that they only had to buy permission to emit once they'd exceeded a cap? So um, the objective is, if you have two companies, um, both uh, polluting 100 tonnes a year, and if company A over here, f- um, uh, and the cap um, would be, say, 190 tonnes, shared between the two. Um, now, if company uh, A found it very cheap to reduce its emissions and company B found it very expensive to reduce its emissions, under old regulation, they'd both have to just reduce their emissions. But under cap and trade, A reduces its emissions a bit more than it needs to to get within its cap, sells the spare to B spare. Okay. so that they can go... They can have any amount of emissions they want as long as they've got permits to do so. But, of course, across the whole of industry across Europe, emissions come down year after year. At least that's the theory. Um, there have been a number of problems. So you've got to talk about the little, some of the teething troubles because obviously it didn't do much. No, that's right. So, um, so we had the, um, so the purpose is to reduce emissions, of mm. course. And um, the price of EU allowances when they first started trading. So the, st- the system started on 1st of January 2005, but uh, trading... Well, there was the very first trade in 2003, um, but there was regular trading from around the summer of 2004. Um, I left, um, uh, I, well, I left uh, uh, Enron along with everybody else. I went to EDF Trading for a little while and dealt with their renewable energy portfolio. And after that, um, I, went and, I went to Barclays. And I, I was 10 years at Barclays. And in 2004, we did our first emissions trade. And one of the most important things... Uh, uh, that was lacking from the market that the, the banks and other participants put together was trading documentation. So under ISDA, the ISDA Emissions Trading Annex allowed that market to uh, take off. And then in 2005, the first exchanges, and I think we have uh, a member of uh, the ICE team over here, um, uh, uh, 2005 emissions trading started on the ICE exchange um, and you know, the market never looked back. And the prices were set how? So... Um, the, the price is, is supply and demand, right? So if, um, if there's a, no, a number of um, whoever's, uh, uh, um, uh, whoever uh, is dominant will cause the, the, the direction of the price, just like any other, any other commodity market. The difference with... Um, so, uh, good question. So um, the member states uh, organise the, um, uh, uh, the collation of data um, which is uh, put forward by verifiers. Those verifiers are um, uh, licensed, if you like. Um, I forget the name of the, um, the body. They're licensed by the government to do the verification. Uh, and every company uh, in the emissions trading scheme, and just to um, put that into some context, every cement producer, every large power station, every chemical plant, every glass-making plant, um, uh, one of our customers... Brews beer. If you if you if you have a big enough uh, uh, carbon footprint, you're involved in the ETS. Um, the cutoff is and, and, and where is the cutoff point? So how... twenty megawatts thermal is the cutoff. Sorry, twenty megawatts. 
20 megawatts thermal for static installations. Um, uh, so that means um, uh, if you have a boiler, and you're, you're not producing electricity, um, uh, but if you have a boiler that has a thermal capacity of 20 megawatts or more, or arrangement of boilers on one site, um, then you are in the EU ETS. Unless um, uh, you're, you've got a carve-out, for example, there's a special hospital scheme uh, in the UK that a lot of people are able to, a lot of hospitals are able to uh, utilise to get out of the emissions trading scheme. Trouble is, you come out of the emissions trading scheme, you fall into some other uh, form of uh, regulation, so um, uh, it keeps changing. Um, but uh, uh, the um, uh, climate change agreements um, uh, are one of those um, uh, things you fall into if you fall out of the EU ETS. But there, there are commercial validators, are there not? Um, so every... Uh, um, uh, so you, you, there are companies that prepare... You can do it in-house or you outsource to an auditor of some description... Uh, a, an assessment of your emissions and then a verifier um, has to come along and make sure that's been done properly and then that is submitted to the um, uh, what do they call it in the UK every, um, every country's got a different name for its system uh, it's, a, it's an, uh, an online system you submit your emissions um, uh, your emissions data to that system it gets signed off by the verifier in that system you sign your life away when you um, uh, do a sort of double verification that those are a true representation as far as you know of your emissions. And then at the end of each year, you have to have as many carbon credits that you sort of sacrifice against that emissions number um, uh, as you have emissions. And if you have a shortfall, you have a fine. That fine has changed over time. It's currently €107 Euros per tonne if you get it wrong. But it doesn't mean you get out of jail. You have €107 Euros per tonne fine and you still have to come up with the carbon credits afterwards so that you don't, uh, you don't, don't get away with it. And people get fined every year. You'd be amazed. Um, after all 15 years, there are people spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of euros because they got it wrong, um, usually aircraft operators. Aircraft came into the system in 2012. Uh, they have a different um, cut-off, uh, so you'll find some very small aircraft operators, private jets and so on, included in the emissions trading scheme. But static installations... It's 20 megawatts uh, thermal capacity and, and over. Now, um, uh, when the system started trading, it was trading at around 7 euros. It did that for quite a while. Um, back in 2004 and early 2005, the price took off. And the idea was that there are a lot of companies that needed to buy, so they were buying it. The electricity utilities in particular, um, electricity and heat uh, covers 65% uh, of the emissions that are covered by the EU ETS. So... Uh, electricity producers kind of don't care what the price of carbon is because they get to charge it to their customers in the power price. Mm. And because all their competitors are in the same boat, the power price just moves with the carbon price uh, um, without fail. And um, those uh, electricity utilities chased after the price because the wisdom was if the system was short and there was a need for uh, companies to buy carbon credits, that the only way to short-term reduce the carbon intensity of Europe was to burn more gas and less coal. And at the time, the cost to do that in CO2 terms was 70, around €70 Euros per tonne. Right? So the whole market was thinking that um, here we are at 7 and there's a lot of demand and the price went up and up and up to 30, <coughs> uh, over €30 Euros, um, uh, because the market thought, well, um, while the utilities continued to buy, they didn't care. And uh, other participants in the market figured that uh, you know, it's not going to stop till we get somewhere near 70 euros. System short, 
need to incentivise fuel switching, fuel from coal to gas, gas per megawatt hour of electricity, per unit of electricity, um, gas produces, uh, gas-fired power stations produce about half uh, as much CO2 as a coal-fired power station. So that's why gas is obviously less carbon intensive. To encourage that fuel switching, 70 euros. Um, what then happened uh, was the, uh, uh, the system um, was exposed as being long, not short. Now, all of industry across Europe, except the UK, uh, and uh, no, it's about except the UK, um, and even plenty in the UK, uh, all of industry across Europe had been given more free allocation from their governments than they needed. That's the power sector, the cement sector, every sector. And so it transpired in when the data started to get published in around February, March 2006, it transpired that there were too many carbon credits. So here we are reaching 30. And the reason it came off 30 originally was because a large steel company in, uh, that will remain nameless sold a lot of volume at 30 euros because they knew they had too much. Yeah. And so it messed around a little bit. And when we get, to, um, we get to 2006, it managed to pick up to 30 euros again. It went down to €8.50 within the space... Well, it went to €11 in the space of a day, um, and it went to as low as €8.50 over the next two weeks. Um, uh, And so um, phase one of the EU ETS was exposed for what it was, full of governments that were very happy to cheat and give their industry, protect their industry, with too much free allocation. So we had very low prices. Uh, phase two came along, 2008. Um, there was a, a, um, a learning by doing moment for the European Commission. Uh, free allocation was much more uh, restricted. Um, uh, not perfect, but it was uh, better, certainly, than uh, phase one. What um, Oh, gosh, now that <laughs> is a good question. Um, apart, from, apart from lobbying by business. Uh, yeah, well, there's some uh, incredible, incredible lobbying. So RWE lobbied as hard as they could to get the biggest possible free allocation they could, not realising, actually, if there was a high carbon price, they'd make more money. Um, so uh, industry can't help but lobby to avoid the impact of any change that's coming their way. And that's, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's completely normal. So the free allocation... Well, today, uh, in, um, uh, from... Uh, was it phase... Yes, phase three onwards, which is 2013 onwards, the electricity sector gets no free allocation anymore. They have to buy it all, and they buy it from auctions. The governments run the auctions. So the government gets some revenue these days. Um, uh, Everybody else gets a free allocation. If you are deemed to be exposed to international competition for your product, you are on the leakage list, and you get, in theory, 100 or more percent of your requirements for free. Um, uh, But if you're a very inefficient person in a a pile of uh, people in the same industry as you, you'll get less free allocation, actually, than the guy that's most efficient. And then the amount, the quantum you get is related to uh, your um, historic production. And there's a, I could spend a day talking about just the allocation process. To what extent does it actually incentivise those industries? So I'm thinking kind of cement, fibre industry, etc., etc., to actually uh, innovate and look for some new solutions that reduce their carbon footprint. Because those two industries, in the, as an example, I don't know what the exact one is, probably about 15% I would imagine of global emissions, CO2 emissions. Uh, and if we assume it's the same in Europe, it's about 15% of European emissions. What incentivizes those industries if they get the carbon credits for free to actually reduce their carbon impact? So um, the simple answer to that is price. Uh, if you 
are that cement company and you choose to focus on the opportunity because the price at which you could sell those things is high and it's going to unlock a whole load of revenue, if you can come up with the secret formula to lower CO2, bricks, cement, whatever, um, you're going to go for it. Um, so Because you can sell those carbon credits. Um, uh, well, I, um, uh, um, I don't know. <laughs> but you can make a significant amount of money trading permits. Well, that's right. So if you've got more than you need, you can sell them and you can raise a load and, of capital. I mean, in terms of overall revenue, this, this is meaningful. A, a, meaningful for individual companies. Absolutely it is. So uh, the biggest polluter is RWE, and they have emissions of around 150 million tonnes a year. And at a price, um, as I left the office today, of €25.66, um, then um, uh, that amounts to a chunk of cash. Mm. That's per year. Mm. Um, now, RWE spends that much money each year because they don't get free allocation anymore. Mm. So they're doing everything they possibly can, uh, actually, to avoid spending that money. Um, clearly, you've got a bigger incentive when you're spending money versus when you're making it. Um, uh, I know that shouldn't be the case, but it is the case. Um, industry... Uh, classically hoards its excess free allocation and doesn't release it to the market, which is a massive inefficiency for the emissions trading scheme. Um, but uh, the free allocation uh, uh, and combined with auctioning um, has been too generous, uh, given that we had a, um, a recession in 2008-2009. Um, gas has been cheaper than predicted. Uh, energy efficiency has um, grown. Uh, and unfortunately, um, well, fortunately for the environment, I suppose, but um, unfortunately for the carbon price, countries like Germany have spent so, and the UK for that matter, have spent so much money on subsidising renewable energy that fossil fuels have been pushed out of the merit order slowly but surely by uh, carbon-free generation. Now, I say unfortunately, uh, it's unfortunate for all of us because if you calculate the cost per tonne of carbon avoided of some of the offshore wind contracts, we're looking at £150, £200 a tonne. Right? And the carbon price is sitting there at five euros. So um, clearly, there's misaligned incentives in this whole system. And I, I gave uh, evidence at a House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee hearing where they said, but we need that offshore grid connection in order to connect the wind turbines. And I said, do we? I mean, unless there's a, uh, unless there's a price telling you that you should build these things, actually, you don't need them. And unless the EUA price picks up, you're not going to get that price through carbon pricing anytime soon. Um, now, if you want to talk about offshore wind uh, as a security of supply issue, uh, well, then be honest about it. But if you're going to talk about it as a carbon-saving measure, it's just not accurate. And there are better, cheaper ways of reducing your emissions, um, uh, if that is the goal, um, than uh, subsidising offshore wind at the time. Now, of course... Um, uh, the argument then could have been, well, if we don't do it, then we won't foster innovation. Today, we're, um, uh, offshore wind is being financed at £36 a megawatt hour, which is just incredible, frankly. Very, very cheap. Um, so you know, there has been some benefit, but economic efficiency tells you you don't subsidise one thing uh, and cause it literally, to undermine the other thing, the other tool you're using to try and reduce emissions across the economy. And when I say across the economy, if there's one big problem with the EU emissions trading scheme is it covers about 43% of the economy. Um, for whatever reason, and I've been saying the same thing for 15 years now, whatever reason, not 100% of the economy 
or somewhere near 100% of the economy is included in the emissions trading scheme. There's arguments about logistics being complex, but they're false arguments. Uh, in California, there's an emissions trading scheme that covers 85% of the economy. New Zealand planned to have 100% of the economy. Um, they have such a large... Uh, but they, pretty much everything is in there except agriculture. Agriculture is so big in New Zealand, and actually New Zealand is so small, so it doesn't... Um, does, that, does that differ from country to country within the European Union, or is it standard across? No, the rules are set across the whole of the European Union. Um, so they're set on behalf of whom? On behalf of the Germans? Uh, so um, the, um, uh, the rules are set... Uh, mm. So the Council of Ministers agrees the, um, uh, uh, agrees the target. So in this case, we have a 40% reduction that is now law, uh, 40% reduction across Europe by 2030. Then there's this thing called the Burden Sharing Agreement, uh, which divvies up who's got to do what. Uh, so Spain has to do less than the UK. Um, France has a... a pretty good percentage target, I guess, but um, uh, it's got low emissions because of all its nuclear power stations, so the number of tonnes it reduces is less. And when it comes to policy, Rachel is the absolute expert. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so, so which are the main missing sectors then, if there's if it's still a minority? Well, um, the standout is transport, um, but if you consider that in all of your homes, you're burning gas, right, because gas is cheaper, right? Uh, it's cheaper to heat your home than using electricity. Um, but the, the solution to climate change is electrification of absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. All industry, all transport, all everything. And here we are with the cost of carbon being translated directly into electricity prices that are already more expensive than gas anyway because, um, uh, uh, because of the inefficiencies involved. Uh, relative to burning gas directly in your home. And uh, electricity prices are further boosted by these uh, £200 a tonne offshore wind farms from five years ago. Uh, And we are completely, therefore, incentivised to burn gas on which there is no carbon price whatsoever. So we're being told we need to move to electricity, and yet gas is uh, subsidised all the way. And I um, hesitate slightly because... Julia works for Gazprom, but uh, <laughs> um, ultimately the, um, uh, uh, the incentives need to be aligned. So there are, by not including every part of the economy in carbon pricing, we run the risk of making uh, false incentives uh, and having uh, uh, uneconomic outcomes. And um, uh, the... Um, uh, uh, the places where they've got that right, such as California, um, will put a price on everything. There's plenty wrong with the California system, so don't, uh, don't get excited about California. It's completely oversupplied, and the price is doing uh, nothing to incentivise emissions reductions, but um, at least they've got the starting point right. They still have lots of power cuts, aren't they? Which goes back to the Emerald Days. Yes, yes. That wasn't me, by the way. That was really bad guys. Um, so uh, the, the, um, the power cuts are... Uh, well, the power cuts they've had recently are related to um, the yes the uh, the liability um, that um, uh, came about after power cables bashed together, sparked, set off forest fires, and now um, is it PG&E uh, or what's PG&E? That? That's right. PG&E have a 2.9 billion dollar liability as a consequence of these fires, um, and they're saying, well, you know what? 
I'd rather just not sell electricity. Um, because it, it, when they have high wind and dry conditions, you get sparks and it sets fire to things. So they're completely different. Um, so I've watched the smartest guys in the room two months. Oh, right, OK. Right. I don't think I've seen that film yet, actually. I probably let's, let's not knock you off track anymore. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so we've got a load of uh, different ETSs, actually, around the world, but there's not that many of them. Europe's is still the largest. Um, we've got the California ETS. We have uh, South Korean ETS. Um, we have... Uh, um, we have another emissions trading scheme in the uh, eastern states of the United States um, that only covers the power sector. China has talked about having an emissions trading scheme for a very long time. Um, uh, they talked about it more under Barack Obama than they do under Trump, funnily enough. And we have uh, the prospect of them starting in earnest in 2020. And that will only cover the power sector in China, and it will be bigger than the EU ETS by uh, 100%. Um, so they will become the world's largest emissions trading scheme. Um, but I don't think any of us will be rushing to go there and transact in it uh, because it, it won't be allowed to operate in a, in a free manner. Um, I, I, I still don't understand your argument saying, oh, you know, we shouldn't subsidise and say renewable energy because it keeps the carbon pricing. So mm. no, shouldn't the carbon pricing be, uh, you know, adjusted that, uh, you know, that, that there's less credits being given so that the price is going up. Absolutely and right. Why, and why is gas excluded? Is it competing against coal? Or what, what, why is gas so gas is excluded because it's excluded. I, I don't have a good explanation for you. Um, so if there are sectors that need to be involved in the ETS, transport uh, and uh, heating, um, uh, uh, well, actually gas consumption, let's just call it gas consumption across small industry and all of us, um, it's not included, uh, presumably, because it's a... Well, you know, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let Rachel explain that one. Um, uh, uh, Rachel worked, um, uh, worked on uh, uh, ETS policy issues for a long time. Um, I do want to get to Rachel, so let's, yeah. uh, let's try and uh, hold off on these many questions. So now, um, uh, uh, so we've got a load of uh, different ETSs around the world, and you'll find California's priced at about $17. You, uh, Europe's at €26. Euros, um, South Korea's about €26. Euros. Um, uh, the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the US is about $6. Um, uh, and, the, and the reason they don't all link together is because they all have different ambition, different rules. Uh, but the panacea is a global emissions trading scheme. Um, but we've tried that, and it isn't going to happen, and it's not likely to happen uh, in, in any um, foreseeable future. Um, now, the ETS was oversupplied uh, every single year. So there was more given out for free or auctioned than there was demand for carbon credits every single year since 2008. 2008 was the only year in 15 years of emissions trading that the system was actually short, but it wasn't short even that year. Because I won't bore you with the detail, but um, uh, it's been long every single year. So an excess has built up in the system, and that's pushed the price down and kept it low for a very long time. And we've had uh, um, some reforms to the system to allow that price to recover, to incentivise uh, uh, a change in behaviour. And uh, there, were, uh, there are a whole number of changes for Phase 4, which starts in 2021. But the most important change started this year, on the 1st of January, which is called... Uh, the, the measure is called the Market Stability Reserve. And it calc uh, the, the Commission calculates how much excess there is in the system... And the market stability reserve sucks out 24% of that excess every single year. It does that by removing um, uh, volumes that are auctioned. So uh, the immediate impact of that was everyone saying, oh, the price is probably going to go up, but it didn't go up. Uh, uh, but slowly and surely, uh, people like Mark Lewis, um, equity analyst at Barclays at the time, 
went round to everyone he could find and said, you do realise what's going to happen to the EU ETS, don't you? And a number of hedge funds and others started to buy. A number of very large industrials saw the writing on the wall and started to buy. RWE created a little nest egg because they're the, they've got one of the uh, most carbon-intensive power generation fleets in Europe. They needed a hedge, so they went and bought a, a big fat chunk of EU allowances at five, six, seven euros. Uh, now, the trend caught on. Uh, now, at the end of 2017, the price was around eight euros. By the end of 2018, the price was 25 euros. Right? So a massive increase in price, mostly driven by... Uh, speculative activity because actually the market stability reserve hadn't even started yet. So the market stability reserve started this year um, and you'd expect the price to be massive because it's sucking out all this volume Uh, and in fact for Brexit reasons the UK's auctioned nothing but UK utilities buy carbon as normal. So the system is the auction volumes are half what they were in, in 2019 they're half what they were in 2018. The price hasn't actually moved and that's because the gas price has come down uh, and a lot of the speculators have exited their positions. And so we have a, a fairly, well, it's still quite exciting and volatile, but the market price isn't going any higher. But the forecasts are for it to go a lot higher. Um, the upper forecasts, um, are 65 euros. Um, next year, the average forecast is uh, somewhere between 30 and 35 euros amongst the major analysts. Uh, the year after, uh, we're talking uh, 35 to 40 euros. Uh, there's a bit of a change after that, uh, but that's a way off, so I'm, I won't bore you with that detail. What that has done is it's caused uh, events like this, actually. I mean, I've never been invited to this thing before because there's nothing to talk about uh, in the past. Carbon's been pretty damn boring. The last 10 years, it has been a very frustrating uh, business to be involved in. Um, uh, uh, um, it's become meaningful because the price has gone higher, but it's also become meaningful for a number of other reasons. And... The, um, uh, uh, the fact that we have investors involved uh, in the volumes they are for the first time ever, I mean, it's, it's um, been quite remarkable. That's because the writing is clearly on the wall what's going to happen next. And it, and it has happened and will continue to happen, uh, but to a lesser degree. Um, uh, emissions reductions now have a payback. So the cement company um, that uh, can find the magic bullet, the silver bullet, um, uh, can make a profit by reducing its emissions. Um, other companies that don't have enough reallocation uh, need to pay close attention to what's going on because they're going to see some massive holes in their balance sheet if they don't. And we've got a whole array of customers. Some of them listened to us and some of them didn't or couldn't. Um, so the ones that listened bought it at five, six, seven euros and made a bit of a nest egg. The ones that didn't are paying 25 euros right now. I think we have to... I'm, I'm fascinated. and that's the, the problem is that I think that we have to move to Rachel... Uh, otherwise, we're not going to get Rachel and Julia both uh, their, their views on, on, on the table. So can you pick up, can you pick up Louis' narrative exactly where he stops and continues? Absolutely. <laughs> um, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm Rachel Ward. My current role is head of policy with the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. Um, if you're not familiar with us, we're a European investor membership body across uh, 13 countries with Uh, just over 180 investors with about 27 trillion euros in assets under management. Um, All of our members are committed to mobilising more capital to support a low-carbon and climate-resilient transition. Um, I've been there about three years, and um, carbon pricing is a a large part of of what we do in the policy programme. But I spent most of my career about 11 years in UK government, and just under half of that was um, as an ETS negotiator, mostly sat behind the UK flag 
in the European Council banging the table um, and uh, arguing about <laughs> the finer points of the ETS directive. Um, so I'll draw on both of those um, perspectives uh, in terms of my remarks. So thank you, Louis, for such a thorough <laughs> uh, overview of um, what the ETS is and, and, and kind of how it operates. I thought what I could do is expand a little bit on the why, uh, because it's obviously a hugely technical mechanism, but there's a lot of politics actually um, that, that, that govern the ETS and the way that it's developed, which it's clear from a lot of the questions is not always entirely logical, but there are drivers behind that, which I'll, I'll try and cover off a little bit. Um, and I'll also talk through the investor perspective and some of those longer-term um, price signals um, and why they're important. Give us the as... dirt on what really goes on in Westminster oh, absolutely. When, <laughs> when these climate change issues are discussed. Yeah, um, and look into the future as well in yeah, terms of what, what we can expect um, for next steps. So, um, I mean, when the when the ETS was first developed, it was it was really the cornerstone of the EU's climate change policy, and it was around the time. Who that drove we had, it? Um, it was the European Commission. Um, there was a lot of UK specifically leadership. within the Commission. I mean, the Commission. Uh, so at the time, there wasn't a climate change DG. So it was the Environment uh, DG who who really pushed it forward. I'll say that there was genuinely a lot of UK leadership, as Lewis explained, that there had been a nascent ETS. Uh, on a national basis, so there was a lot of um, interest and enthusiasm around the idea of how you create a market for carbon because um, although tax is a is a very simple measure to implement at the EU level, it requires unanimity among the member states and you, you never get unanimity on climate change measures. So there was a kind of a practical negotiating reason why they went with a with a market as 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 well as um, the, the more technical reasons. Uh, in terms of which sectors were covered, I mean, the, although it was meant to be a cornerstone flagship policy, it was understood that, you know, it was a very novel policy area. It was going to try and be world-leading, but they had to take it a step at the time. It was it, it entailed enormous upheaval for the sectors that were covered, and so they, they didn't want to go too fast, too quickly. Um, that's why we had, you know, a fairly... Um, well, some would soft say stuff. soft is <laughs> a, a diplomatic way of putting it, um, which which then they tried to ramp up over over subsequent phases, and there've been there've been many rounds of negotiations to tighten up the ETS, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. Um, but it was accepted that it wouldn't be perfect to start with, so it's it's never tried to to pretend to be a perfect instrument. I think it's it has though suffered because of some of those early decisions, and the surplus is the main. Um, uh, problem that, that we've seen as a result of that that's still um, that's still rearing its head um, but it does attract a huge amount of, of negative lobbying as, as we've already noted and um, a lot of that unfortunately does did and still does govern um, which sectors are included how they are treated um, and, uh, and I expect we'll continue to see that as we look to the future and, and whether there's possible expansions into different sectors the one thing I will say in defense of the way it's been designed is that the EU has to adhere by um, a principle called subsidiarity, which is that the EU will only legislate at the most appropriate level. So should the EU take action on climate change? Yes, it's a systemic cross-boundary issue that, you know, doesn't matter if there are emissions in Germany or France or, or, the, or the UK, it's going to um, still impact the climate. But should the EU be legislating, um, you know, for SMEs? It's quite a different debate. So they had to draw a line somewhere. Um, the fact that it was a new and novel policy area, as well as the fact that the EU didn't want to be meddling too much in what were seen as, as national or locally reserved issues um, was another reason why certain sectors have been left out. But I, as, as we've heard, I expect that will continue to be debated. 
Um, so we've seen over the course of the life of the ETS that it's had to respond to um, pressures for, for greater ambition on, on climate action, and some of that has been driven by the global process. And you know, as we as we got the achievement of the Paris Agreement, what the EU was offering to that agreement meant um, increased uh, emission reduction pledges, and the ETS had to be adapted to um, to uh, accommodate that. So. Uh, we did see rounds of uh, negotiation to implement those new targets, but at the same time, it was still grappling with this, this problem of, of the surplus and, um, you know, the fact that it's, you know, it, it's it's a false market. It's been created. It's it's not it's not real supply and demand where you've got governments like literally pumping the supply um, into the market. So that that's what the market stability reserve tried to do is turn it into slightly more of a real market that could deal with those external shocks and in a in a in a way that. Um, was, was more akin to a, to a traditional market. But I think what you saw around that time, because it wasn't just the market stability reserve, there were um, attempts at short-term um, taking out of allowances. There was huge amounts of turbulence within the aviation ETS, which was sparking trade wars. Um, there were all kinds of different views about the best way to proceed. And I think what you saw was, um, firstly, a lot of fatigue with it from, from the governments and, and the European Parliament in terms of the constant renegotiation. There was a lot of confusion from the industry that were being regulated and, and calls for more stability. We saw the market during that period become very irrational and quite volatile and, you know, the, the price went as low as two, three euros a tonne for a while and with every little development within the negotiations, you, you saw big spikes in, in both directions and obviously not how a market should be behaving um, even if the, the emissions were coming down and were under the cap, that long-term price signal just wasn't there and a lot of the guys who had taken the ETS on good faith in terms of saying, right, you know, this is the way the world's going, we're going to find ways to reduce our emissions and then we'll be able to profit from that by, by selling on our allowances, had found themselves um, caught out with, with such a low price that, the, that their approach wasn't really commercially viable. So it was recognised that, you know, it still wasn't fit for purpose. Um, around even 2015, 2016, um, it was at such a um, delicate point that, you know, I was at meetings in Brussels with, with NGOs who were saying it's just time to, to fix it or let it die, really. Uh, even the NGOs weren't standing up for it anymore and were looking at alternatives. Um, but that's where the, the latest round of, um, uh, of, of uh, reforms came in. Uh, at the same time, we had a lot of faith uh, in the market stability reserve generated by people like Mark, um, where we saw, even though it hadn't entered into force, that the market started to price it in in, in, in anticipation of the, of the regulations coming in, and then there were further measures to take out surplus um, in, in the um, negotiations that planned out the ETS up to 2030. So all of that together has, has kind of seen a, a more recent boost in the price, and it's, it's now finally starting to, to head in the right direction. And, and sorry, can I just ask, because there's a 40% emission The emissions, the emissions cap will, the the cap will be achieved if if people comply with the ETS because what you do is you you look at well what does forty percent emissions reduction by twenty thirty look like in real terms and then you literally draw a line and that the the rate of de of decline of those emissions is called the linear reduction factor uh, and the the amount of emissions that can be emitted across the EU within the ETS 
each year is then calculated on the basis of that linear reduction. Um, so the, the surplus is, is impacting the price. So it's, it's, it's important not to conflate. I mean, they're obviously both clearly linked, but there's, there's the cap which governs how emissions come down. That has never been an issue in the ETS. We've, we've never exceeded the cap. And there's arguments about, well, you know, was it the ETS or was it the recession um, that, that delivered on that? But we've, we've never had an issue with, with going over the cap. What has been an issue is the price. And there you're looking at are people making the right investments um, and putting the right R&D in place and, and actually changing their business models so you get the, the longer-term impact in the real economy because 2030 is one point um, but now in Europe there's discussions about net zero by 2050 what will that mean for the ETS are we going to have retroactive changes to the 2030 target to tighten it even more when it says net zero you only buy offset you know something offset which is sort of just a monetary offset Mm -hmm. how do you net zero you see what I mean I pay some money that doesn't mean I take carbon out yeah, I mean, I that's still... Plant a few trees. That's the cap. Um, it's a sink. I think it's yeah. a sink. Like it's a yes, sink. Yeah. it is. Yeah. Exactly. Unavoidable emissions get yeah. offset yeah. with uh, domestic so sinks. You'll have a kind of a, an absorption strategy for the EU, which will look at natural sinks, but also negative emissions technologies. So for those sectors where it is literally impossible to mitigate to zero, um, what are the alternatives that, that can take those emissions? Natural absorption strategies... That that would be different companies that then would be using land and plant trees. That wouldn't be a compromise that that, that caused the emission, would it? Potentially, just pay and yeah. that money is being used for natural absorption. I think in practice, it's probably how it would work, but I wouldn't rule anything out. This is still very much an emerging area of, of, of policy discussion in Brussels. One question here. I just had a quick question on the. Uh, Little there? louder, because we don't have the, the oh, microphone. The opportunity to kind of maybe double dip so for the electric companies that were generating power using coal and that were able to use, I guess, EU ETS when they and they could also transition to other types of energy like biomass. Uh-huh. So they were they were subject to subsidies, is that right? Like the other the subsidies that the UK was giving. And they could also enter the EU ETS. And I don't know if that was seen as double dipping or it was just trying to get them to there was a lot of unfair um, practices that were going on and you, you did see a lot of companies making quite big windfall profits from um, the free allocation process and especially when you combine that with other measures such as such as subsidies um, so in theory I mean it's another area that's been on the the kind of to fix list for a long time is is the, the general question of how does the ETS interact with other policy areas? Subsidies is one of them, but even you know there's there's, there's clear targets for renewables and energy efficiency. Um, how how do all these interact together? And we'll, we'll see it more with coal coming offline and all the phase out policies that exist at, at the national level. Um, how is the ETS going to incorporate all of that into into how it works? Is still to be decided, really. Yeah. Um, so just in terms of um, that kind of longer-term perspective, which is kind of my, my, my current hat, working with institutional investors, um, so it is this price signal that's, that's always been the, the key issue with the ETS, and, and like I say, it's it's just recently that um, we've, we've been able to see that go up to, to robust and, and meaningful levels, which certainly um, the investors that I work with um, have, have strongly welcomed. Um, 
we're we're still at a point where it's kind of wait and see. I think you know a lot, we have got a lot of the big analysts now agreeing on on where the price is likely to be going, or all things being equal, um, which has put a lot more confidence into the ETS as a as an instrument, and we are seeing that trickle down. So um, European investors are working a lot with um, with policymakers to to encourage um, the, a more general move in this direction to continue to tighten up the, the emissions trading system. But we're also seeing them work with third country governments, whether they have emissions trading schemes currently or they're, they're in development to, to try and bring some of the lessons that have been learned through the, the long and quite arduous process of developing the European system um, to look at how other countries can now develop their, their own um, schemes as well. Um, and investors are also using it as a good lever to work with companies that they own holdings in. So to be able to say to them, you know, these are the these are the now the clear price forecasts. How are you, um, steel company, coal company, um, chemicals company, adapting your your operations, your your innovation strategies, and your R and D uh, around this this kind of policy expectations that we'll we'll see for the coming years. So it's it's been helpful on on two tracks in terms of giving investors. Um, uh, a good um, picture of what the future looks like, but also um, what about volume growth? In terms of just the the market in general, is it really is it growing? You're talking about the EU ETS or um, yeah uh, ETSs in general? Mm. Well, I'm talking ETS in general. I, mean, I mean, do you mean slowly. trading volumes? It's slow, slowly growing in terms of the number of schemes that we're seeing globally. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, Lewis touched on it a little bit. Um, the, there have been schemes popping up, mostly regional or kind of state province level mm-hmm. rather than national ones, but um, they've been slowly more and more coming online over previous years. I mean, when I was in government, we used to regularly receive delegations from, from third countries who just wanted to sit down and understand how the ETS worked, and um, that kind of learning has been helpful for countries, I think. Can I just... So we've been talking about the emissions part, and I'm interested in the sort of, like, natural capital solutions, so also sort of areas where we take out... Where's... You know, if we got to a stable price, let's call it around the 65, 70 level, is there a way to... These are currently incorporated or could be incorporated, and what do we do around the fact that, you know, if the Amazon all burns, all of this is pretty pointless anyway? (laughs) Just the first part of your question, I think a lot lot will be where is the the tipping point in the price for where certain technologies like CCS, for example, start to become commercially viable and we still, still, you know, we're still not there. There have been funding mechanisms set up within the ETS previously to try and incentivise these kinds of technologies, but for various reasons they, they, they haven't worked. So I think coming back to this kind of 2050 where next net zero question this, this, but, but, but this CCS only works on an industrial place what about natural capital which you can sit somewhere else grow some trees they're wonderful yeah, I, I think capture this, is that included um, not not right now but i think this is the clear ne- next step for um where the ets will go in the context of a much bigger green new deal for the eu where they start to look very holistically about how different policy areas fit together and absorption including natural capital will necessarily have to be a huge part of that to achieve the net in the net zero yep um louis had mentioned about the global global ets louder louis had mentioned that there was an attempt at a global ets carbon trading i assume and it wasn't successful and i think there are obvious reasons why it might not be successful but my question is would there ever be an attempt again because also my understanding is without a global carbon price there will be, I guess, I don't know if you call it leakage, but you could outsource, yeah. you know, all the things that everyone worries about with carbon yeah. emissions. 
I mean, there, there are still negotiations ongoing. It's it's a part of the UNFCCC um, every year at COP, and it was it was the one area in Katowice last um, last December that um, they weren't able to get agreement on was was the Global Carbon Markets Article. So that will come up again in Santiago and probably again in in Glasgow next year. Um, but the the basic rules that underpin the global carbon markets systems are are still under negotiation. I think the fact that it's it's still outstanding shows you just how difficult it is politically, and there's so many vested interests. Um, involved in those discussions is, you know, it's a, the ETS is a microcosm of of that at a, at a global level. So it's slowly moving, but it'll take a while, I think, to get there. Which is why, personally, I think the kind of bottom-up approach, where you work with individual countries or um, states and regions to try and develop systems that then could potentially be linked together um, and form coalitions of the willing, is uh, is, a, is a good strategy to pursue in the meantime. Um, so just very briefly to finish in terms of where next. So we've talked a little bit about um, the EU's aspirations for net zero emissions targets by 2050. And um, it's, it's fully expected that the ETS will have to um, you know, account for that in terms of a much tighter cap. So that linear reduction factor will have to um, come down even more. Um, but there's the new um, Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, has also made commitments about bringing new sectors in, um, primarily road transport and shipping. And I think shipping in particular will be very interesting based on the, the previous experience of, of aviation, given that it's, you know, it's a very international um, complex sector in terms of its regulation. So um, we'll, we'll see how those discussions progress. There's also, um, as there's always been, controversy around the, the measures to, pre to prevent the risk of carbon leakage, and um, there's a huge amount of lobbying that goes on on that constantly, but we now have the idea of um, introducing a kind of carbon border tax, um, either in parallel to or instead of the, the carbon leakage measures and the free allocation that exists, where there's lots of very interesting different positions and, and, and lobbying, and you've got um, countries taking quite different views on that. So um, that, that will also be a, a, an interesting area to, to watch because it's not just about the ETS, it's also about our, the EU's kind of wider trading relationships and how it will impact on um, third countries and, um, uh, and, and how their products are regulated from a climate change point of view. Um, and I've also I've mentioned obviously how how the ETS interacts with other policy areas, which will be in increasingly important as um, lots of different policies start to now anchor themselves around um, increased climate action and, and the need to tackle climate change. Uh, and then the final thing I wanted to mention, just from a UK point of view, is obviously um, Brexit and, and what next. So you know the well, the, the votes the, just passed. I got a message. Oh yeah, <laughs> the. Um, the UK, with its with its current position in terms of coming out of the single market and the customs union, means necessarily it will have to come out of the EU ETS. And um, in the event that there is a deal, the UK government are seeking to develop a, a national ETS that would then potentially be linked back to the EU scheme. Um, I mean, technically, this is all completely possible. Um, I will I would say that you know the negotiations to link the Swiss scheme took seven eight years and then and then the whole even though it was agreed it was then halted because the swiss held a referendum to block free movement of people so you can see how some of the bigger politics can can really impact um uh just you know trying to get on with with the technicalities of, of carbon trading so it's a very open question i think where the the uk will go next with carbon pricing it has been a global leader on this and um it would be a real shame for that to to stop so but there's no there's no question of abandoning it absolutely not i mean even and if there's it no should deal, be relatively easy to align it should it not 
In principle, um, but the ETS is very complex insofar as you can't just carve one country out in the way that you can from other regulations. You know, it's a system. Um, so the, the ETS will change and the UK will change. And how you align those with the kind of wider principles that the UK is pursuing around, um, you know, sovereignty and, um, and, and decision-making um, is, is still to be seen, given if they do want to link, they will be the smaller partner and they will necessarily have to be led by the bigger market so there will be politics that 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 interact a lot with those negotiations Um, in the meantime if there's no deal or there's any risk of um, uh, disruption or or, or lengthy drawn out um, processes that start to interfere with the price then they they have got measures in place to put a tax um, there instead for however long that takes so um, the commitment to, to a price signal for carbon will definitely remain in the UK, but what form that takes is, is still a bit of an open question. Okay, well, look, yeah, two, two quick questions. Um, in terms of natural capital and uh, the reduction... Uh, the, uh, oh, it is working. Yes, there we have got a microphone. <laughs> in terms of the net zero by 2050 and the absorption strategy, particularly looking at the commitment in the 25-year environment plan here in the UK, which is fundamentally based on uh, reducing carbon, of course, are insurers able to buy in to carbon credits and then transfer it through TCFD into how they're looking at investment in corporates? Uh, The short answer is, I think the answer would be yes in principle, although I've not heard of that being done. Um, I mean, That's what I'm doing. Okay, great. <laughs> Maybe I should chat to you afterwards then. Um, all right, I really want to bring Julia in because um, then we, we will have some time for questions at the end. But you're actually, as it were, at the coal, <laughs> the coal face. Uh, perhaps that's the, not the gas face. Yeah. <laughs> Is it all working? Are you going to get filthy rich on it? And how does it work? Uh, Gazprom, you mean? Or? Yeah. Well, so um, uh, just a little bit about myself first. Um, I um, so I've been at Gazprom for eleven years now, um, uh, one and only place I've ever worked at. Um, I'm originally uh, a marine biologist, uh, but struggled to get a job in two thousand eight. So I, I ended up uh, on the uh, EUETS desk at uh, Gazprom Marketing and Trading here in London, um, and um, my job has changed. A lot throughout the years. I mean, I started working in the uh, global uh, Kyoto scheme, so the CDM and JI markets, uh, which was um, huge um, for for a good few years. Um, Gazprom were very active uh, in that arena. Um, then carbon slowed down uh, with with the price downturn. Um, you know, in the middle of, of, of the current phase we're in. Um, and during that time, I started getting more involved with the uh, UK power sector. Um, um, and I was uh, portfolio managing our UK, uh, mainly gas peaking assets, but it also yeah, involved um, solar and wind assets uh, that we were dispatching um, on a daily basis. Um, but then now, so um, last year, last, well, last two, three years, I've become 100% um, uh, carbon trader um, and um, uh, particularly last year where we saw the, the tripling in carbon prices was, uh, uh, you know, it was tremendously exciting having come from two years of nothing going on. Um, and I, I tra- actually, I should mention, so Gazprom, whilst we are the 
largest um, gas supplier into Europe. We are actually not covered by the EUTS as such. Um, we have no installations. Um, we have no power. We have no utilities in Europe. So we simply supply the gas into Europe. Um, so I, my job is is a pure sort of speculative role um, at Gazprom. I sit amongst um, a lot of power and gas traders, um, and I, uh, my job is really to provide my trading colleagues with a view of where I think carbon is going. Um, so it's it's very interesting. So my my job really is is you have the the long term policy signals that we've discussed a little bit um, that. You know, particularly last year, funds came in with with an extremely bullish view. Um, uh, prices tripled. Um, so, so you have that sort of. Sometimes it could be quite irrational from a fundamental perspective, um, you know, because the ultimately on a day to day basis, what drives prices um, are the actual emissions. Um, and and as we've actually one of the questions. Andrew wants us to, uh, to, to focus on was, uh, is the EU is actually working? And we have seen a tremendous reduction in, in, uh, in emissions uh, in, in this phase. Yes, we had, um, you know, the big economic downturn in 2009, which, you know, drastically slashed emissions. Um, but also, we've seen, um, you know, huge uh, increase in renewable energy. Um, the power sector emissions are drastically coming down year on year. Um, this year, we've seen uh, my estimates are so for the full year, uh, coal to gas switching in the region of sort of 80 million tons worth of, of CO2 just this year. Um, and within the current cap of the EUTS, actually emissions are reducing so quickly um, that, you know, un- unless the cap is tightened or other measures are implemented, actually the system is beginning to look a little bit. Uh, a little bit slack, and and so it's very difficult for um, a speculative trader where you see all these bearish short-term fundamentals, um, but you know in the back of your head, you know you know you know the new commissioner is coming in. She's very ambitious. She's made that very clear. She wants to, within a hundred days have this uh, new green deal in place. Um, so you sort of know that that is coming, um, and I, I mean I believe the cap will eventually get tightened. Um, you know. We're going to see perhaps a carbon border tax introduced, um, so we don't have the leakage issue. Can you um, talk a bit more about the carbon border tax? Because, um, like, the fundamental question which um, looms even larger after listening to all this, which is, I don't understand why taxing the emissions wouldn't have been better in the first place. However, carbon border tax coming in, how would that work? Well, I, th- I mean, the idea is that. Um, if the EU is serious about being the most you know, ambitious continent in terms of climate uh, reduction, sorry, emissions reduction, um, we need to drive the price of carbon higher. And if you drive the price of carbon higher, you're going to incentivize industry to shut down in Europe and simply move to a location where there are no carbon prices. Um, you know, and it, the, introducing this border tax, um, you know, is a I'm not sure how I was going to interact with, uh, you know, world trade uh, organization <laughs> rules, um, but but that is really what is needed. You know, other, otherwise you know, yeah. the emissions will simply go elsewhere, and that's clearly not a not a viable long term solution. Does that um, operate in in California? Do, I mean, in these regional smaller scale ETFs? I mean, are there such things as? I mean, because within the U.S., all trade is completely free, isn't it? 
not strictly yeah, no. speaking. So um, imports of power from outside of California are subject to uh, surrender of a sufficient number of carbon credits to reflect the generation source. So um, uh, you have a de facto carbon tax, uh, cross-border carbon tax through, through that mechanism. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so basically you, um, the question really is now, um, you know, do the, the investors that came in last year, certainly we've seen a lot of them exit the market this year, um, you know, do they, at what point do they refine their confidence and re-enter the market, um, you know, perhaps within the next, um, uh, you know, with a new commission coming in place, I think there will be some strong signals sent again to the market, which, you know, should uh, regain this this uh, this fund interest. Um, you know, and, and we're also looking at individual countries, perhaps, um, you know, coming out with their individual EUA cancellations to to counteract the effect of coal closures, uh, particularly Germany. I think all eyes are on the uh, uh, the coal commission are meeting in November this year. Um, uh, you know, and, and they are likely to uh, to tell the market whether they. Um, you know, are going to cancel EUAs or not? Um, you know, and, and if if we don't see these tightening signals, um, uh, the, the EU ETS is, is slack because it is actually working really well. Um, and if so, let, let's say we do get uh, a tighter cap, um, we might see some EUA cancellations being uh, announced. Um, you know, at, at some point, prices will start to increase. A lot of people talk about the the forty euro level as the as the next sort of price level where you might see uh, industrial sector abatement. Um, you know, so so that is really the the next target, I think, um, uh, for EUA prices. Um, so, and why is it so important? I mean, if you already have a net zero target for twenty fifty anyway, why is it so important? If you already have a reduction target that you need to show as a, as a business, why do you need to trade? Uh, you, you mean sort of speculatively? Well, not only speculatively, but also... Because uh, you're trying to drive it down faster than the cap is, driving, is coming down. It is, uh, it is too loose, the supply is too large. So mm. why, why not just stick to that emission target? Why do you need to play around with trading well, I, I think I mean the uh, the idea is to to drive down emissions um, in the most efficient way, and and if we have a or is it just the emission target reduction that is? I mean, the I would say um, this year certainly um, you know the fact that so what what happened on the coal to gas switching this year um, was uh, yes uh, gas uh, prices came off significantly. Uh, year on year, but at the same time, um, you know, EUAs have stayed at the same level from last year. So, so we've actually seen EUAs, um, you know, actually have an effect. We've seen hard coal being switched to gas um, this summer, um, you know, which was unheard of uh, a year ago. Uh, so, so it is actually, the price is having an impact at the moment, I would say. I mean, how do you know it's the um, ETS that's uh, driving down the emissions. There's so many other reasons driving down the emissions. Whether it, it's regulation, the, as somebody said, the increasingly in economic renewables sort of getting to crit critical mass. 
um, you know, this gas prices. I mean, what of of the good of the good news about emissions reduction? What can you really put down to the actual trading system? It's a, <laughs> a tricky question. Um, Probably a question for Louis. Yeah, that is the question. Yeah, I mean, I I believe that this year. EUAs have made a difference, uh, particularly on the on the fuel switching side. Um, you know, but you but you also see on the other hand, uh, was it yesterday? The uh, the French cement producer came out and said, uh, you know, that they're going to remove all clinker from their cement. Uh, you know, which which is you know makes their end product significantly more expensive. I don't know how how that story will work work out for them in the end, but um, you know, you are you are seeing companies, you know seemingly doing it voluntarily as well just to you know appear um green uh, to their to their customers and their uh, shareholders so yeah, well, that, I, I think it's there's increased transparency on that which is very and that's going to ratchet up again with the, T, the tcfd but um can i yeah. can i add something so, so i think in um, the early years there was no emission abatement even when the price went to 30 euros because most industry had including the electricity utilities had more than they needed for free um, so, and a lot of them didn't price it properly, perhaps. Um, since then, uh, until recently, the price has been so low that I would argue that no emissions abatement has taken place because of those low prices. Uh, and uh, in that period, um, to have that price so low, everyone had to be over-allocated too. Uh, I want to say everybody, the market as a whole, um, has been long every single year um, since 2008 in terms of the number of allowances in circulation versus the emissions. So the price has been low. Companies haven't had to do much. But now, um, there's two things that have changed. The first is that industry... Um, well, it's 2000, by our calculation, 2017-2018 was the point at which there were more installations in the emissions trading scheme um, that uh, had to buy... Uh, each year to comply, and there were installations that had more allowances than they needed. And that's a really important switching point because, as I mentioned before, if you've got a cost of something, you start to do something about it. If you've got a, a free allocation, which it doesn't come onto your balance sheet, in fact, um, because of the way it's normally accounted for, um, uh, companies just ignore it. They stick it in the environment department and ignore it on the whole. So when there's a cost, that makes a difference. But when the cost is now 26 euros, going on 35 euros, that makes a really big difference. Um, so I think uh, you, you can argue uh, that no emissions uh, reductions have taken place because the gas price fell. Um, it wasn't anything to do with the emission, the carbon price. But if that were the case, the carbon price wouldn't still be 25 euros. So clearly, there's an optimization going on uh, in portfolios of power stations where companies are deciding which power plant to run in favour of another. Um, and that is causing carbon um, uh, emissions to come down. Um, and in industry, the, I think the clinker example is a great one. There's several of them. Uh, 25 euros, people will look to change their behaviour. But changing behaviour takes a while because you're going to typically require an investment in infrastructure that takes a year or two to plan and install, and then you get the emissions reduction come through. So I, I think it's probably been um, relatively unexciting in the past. Um, uh, and now uh, I think things are changing quite uh, quite quickly. All right, let's 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 open it up to questions. Um, 
I, I mean, I think there are some really quite legitimate questions as to the extent to which this has taken place as a result. The re reduction in emissions has taken place as a result of the carbon trading. But um, I think the general sense, certainly amongst the panel, is that, is that it is a, a major factor in driving it down. Questions? There was somebody had a question over there that I ignored. Um, nope. That was me. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> what, what, what was your question going to be about Brexit? That's unusual. <laughs> Something, a question's been answered about Brexit. Well done. <laughs> My question was just going to be how, how Brexit would affect the UK scheme and how easy it will be to come out of the EU ETS. I mean, it, do, you, do you want to expand at all on, 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 what, um, on what Rachel was saying on that? Louis? So, uh, so, so, so Brexit's... Um, Brexit is a really curious one in the case of um, for, for carbon prices because a soft Brexit um, has the chance, the potential to cause prices to go down, and a hard Brexit has, uh, causes the uh, will almost definitely cause the price to go down a lot. Um, whereas you'd expect if there's some sort of resolution, the price would recover. And the reason for that is there's some weird stuff around UK auctions. If there's a soft Brexit, the auctions that have been suspended all year. Um, will actually start again. And if there's a hard Brexit, the electricity utilities will dump all their spare carbon on the market uh, and make, make themselves a windfall profit. Uh, so Brexit's really, really odd. And, and in terms of the longer-term outlook, for the, so the UK government's position is uh, we all benefit in the UK being part of a larger emissions trading scheme. So absolutely the desire is to be part of the EU ETS on the part of the UK government. Um, from my perspective, it creates... Uh, fantastic opportunities to make the EU ETS a lot better than it is, or at least uh, um, the uh, action that takes place in the UK, um, uh, uh, and still benefit from linking the trading part. So Brexit um, uh, is not a it, it's a negative thing if you can't get the UK ETS off the ground and linked by 2021. Um, Alice, you you just raised something there, and that was the stockpile of credits. Um, is that a is that an issue? When I when I was doing a little bit of reading up for this, that some of the critics of of the ETF system have have focused on the stockpile of credits. Is that, how how is it? How can it be worked worked down? Well, so so the market stability reserve is eating away at that stockpile, not by taking it from industrials that are typically the people that are stockpiling, uh, but by taking it away from the auctions each year. So what that causes to happen is uh, well, less auctions and the same amount of demand, then the price goes higher. And that's what we've seen. Um, uh, as the price goes higher, those that have stockpiled, when everyone thinks that industry will just sit on that stockpile forever because they fear higher prices in the future, what industry fears more um, is going out of business in the next one, two or three years, or if they're, private, uh, if they're public companies, their profitability over the next year. Um, and so um, uh, in my business, I, I've moved from working in a bank and trading like, uh, uh, like Julia um, to working with, uh, well, actually with industry all across Europe. And the behavior we see is industry selling that stockpile, part of it, not all of it, not wholesale, but they let it go bit by bit. Um, Executive bonuses are tied to short-term Well, quite possibly. Targets. So, you know, there are, um, uh, uh, there are companies that would have... Um, and this is why then there's a big inefficiency here as well, and there's a lot of inefficiencies in the EU ETF. But companies get the free allocation, it's stored off balance sheet, and if they want to prop up their company one year, shareholders are none the wiser, um, and those companies can take those allowances, sell them, pocket the cash, 
boost their uh, results that year. It's um, it, yeah, there are there are problems. And if we if we see a 2050 target come in and um, and the 2030 targets tightened up as a result of that, then you you will necessarily have to see. Um, action taken within the ETS to speed up the rate at which those allowances are coming out of the system. You have a question there. Yes, and just um, can I just follow through the logic also the way it interacts with the gas? Because if I understand the pathway to net zero, and it's a gas problem, but I'm a right in thinking there should be no foreign gas sales in Europe in a net zero world. But as I understand the way we've been discussing the ETS system is currently it works such as a substitution effect. So the fact that you can use gas rather than coal actually works within the ETS system. But the fact that, that gas is otherwise outside means that once we're past that point of using coal, that it wouldn't actually drive gas to zero. Are those, are those assumptions and logic all flow? Rachel? Uh, yes. Um, the one thing I'd say is that as the price continues to rise, you know, we, we've seen the switch point with, with coal recently. You would, you would logically expect that to happen with gas as well as, as the price of renewables comes down further and they become more commercially viable. Um, that's the principle behind, um, you know, a cap and trade system is that um, certain fuels eventually become priced out of the market. But gas is not explicitly within the system currently. It would act faster if gas was included. Gas production um, is... So, so gas production is in and gas use in, in, in large thermal installations, power stations, boilers, uh, big industrial boilers and so on. It's just not at the domestic level or the SME level. Uh, it, so I can burn gas at home and I don't have a carbon liability. But if I'm using electricity, someone making the electricity has already paid that carbon liability and charged me for it. That was the... Yep. So, that, so that means Russian gas is basically outside the system. So basically Russia is externalising the true carbon cost, climate cost, to Europe of its As a representative of Gazprom... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, yes or no? On the <laughs> for domestic use of gas, yes, that is true. Um, but, um, but but what I would say about gas use in, in the larger installations in, in Europe is that we actually at Gazprom very much see gas as a, as a good stepping stone. Uh, as we've seen already this year, emissions reduced by sort of 80 million tons based on more gas burn. Um, and, you know, if, if we can, um, as I think Louis mentioned, um, you know, gas um, emits about half the amount of CO2 that, that burning coal does. Um, so... So that's. <laughs> However, this is enormously controversial in our sustainable finance for breakfast series. People are always saying, no, gas is not a transition fuel. It would be a disaster if we accepted that it were. Uh, we must go directly to a it already is. It already is a transition fuel. And if it wasn't for Russian gas, um, uh, dare I say it, um, things would be more expensive or we wouldn't be so ambitious with the climate targets. It would be one or the other. In the end, if you're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, that is a delayed payment. At some point, that cost is going to be... We are going to bear all of that. At the moment, the Russians are basically taking today's income from us for us to pay off the debt tomorrow. That's basically what Russian gas is. All right, at the back. Now, take get the... Does this work? Yes, it does. Um, so we've been talking about, my name's Ben Turner, I work for a company called Origin. We're working on technology to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So my question is more aimed at removal. Called a tree. <laughs> um, the, 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 
The problem with trees is to remove the amount of CO2 we need to remove, we would end up basically planting the entirety of the planet with trees. And given we've got a growing population and the amount of water that would be needed, uh, whilst I agree wholeheartedly that a natural solution is the preferred solution, I'm not necessarily sure it is scalable to the degree that we need to scale it. But my question specifically is, um, in order to achieve net zero... Um, it's no longer enough to simply mitigate. We actually have to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And currently, the incentive mechanisms, with the exception of California's low-carbon fuel standard, basically charge you to emit, but do not compensate you for actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So with that in mind, given the EU ETS is basically a cost rather than necessarily an incentive for those types of technologies... Where do you see things developing? And especially in the UK, where we've committed to net zero, how do you see it developing in the UK? Who gets to go first on that? Louis? So I think um, so, so carbon capture and storage uh, at, the, uh, at the, the stack at a power station uh, would allow that power station to not have to purchase carbon credits. So it comes to the same thing in terms of financial incentive. Um, the uh, we we actually ran a conference last week um, and invited to that conference we had a, a discussion about carbon offsetting and invited to that conference was a company called Puro uh, they came out of Finland uh, they're small and they they auction um, uh, uh, carbon removal tons uh, and the technologies they use um, are not carbon capture and storage but m- more natural so actually if you you chop down a tree and put it into your building um, there's a whole load of stored carbon right there and if it's there for more than 50 years according to Finnish law then you can market it as a carbon removal so uh, and they have a a couple of other uh, methodologies they use carbon removals uh, in whatever form they take um, will be uh, um, are the future uh, of of this whole system so it's all very well offsetting your carbon emissions by um, investing in some clean technology in a far-flung country. And that's absolutely to be encouraged because otherwise that far-flung country wouldn't make the investment um, as long as um, that is actually the case. Um, so-called additionality. Um, but in order to hit... Um, uh, in order for the whole world uh, to become carbon neutral over time, you can't outsource that. You have to do it yourself. And so carbon removals have to be... Uh, um, uh, regulated, uh, and they inc- and they should be allowed to be included in um, uh, in regulated systems such as the EU emissions trading scheme. And this comes back to my point about um, the EU ETS um, being, f- to my mind, uh, massively flawed in that only putting a price on 43% of the CO2 emitted by the economy doesn't incentivize the other 57% to do anything about it and leaves out projects like yours. So the EU ETS should, be, uh, uh, should cover 100% of the economy um, to the extent that it can. There are some difficulties around um, agriculture and so on. It, it must cover 100% of the economy um, to allow every single innovation to have its day to be economically incentivized in order to reduce um, uh, our carbon footprint to net zero. Rachel, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I'd uh, agree with part of it. Um, the, certainly the, the importance of um, 
negative emissions technologies and, and carbon absorption. I think it's an it's an issue that the both the UK and the EU are going to have to look at very urgently um, as part of the strategies for how you implement net zero emissions targets because there's, there's just no way around it. I think from a positive point of view that the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees that was published last year really helped to focus minds and was very clear that um, you know there's, there's not really any viable scenarios where this won't play a role. Uh, I think the one the one stumbling block to get around is making sure coming back to the kind of the negative lobbying that we're all used to is making sure that um, a lot of the usual suspects don't just jump on this as a way to continue business as usual um, whilst finding a way for, for someone else to what about the new the new commission I mean do you have a sense I mean obviously you've worked in Brussels such a lot I mean do you have a sense whether this new commission is committed to increasing the coverage of uh, ETFs in terms of the sectors, um, I mean, yeah, they've, they've talked specifically about road transport and shipping. Who is going think, to be the commissioner um, for who will cover this? Uh, so? so Franz Timmermans is, is going to be oh, in charge of the So he's important. Deal. Yeah, very important. He's an mm. executive vice president, so kind of number two after the, the president herself. Um, so, and he's very experienced and, and a real pragmatist. So uh, I think he's a, he's a great um, When you say pragmatist, what does that mean? That doesn't sound... That's, that suggests that he will uh, do what RWE tells him. My policy won't speak. It means he, he can understand how to balance the practicalities of implementation versus the difficult politics and, and find a way through. So um, for me, that's a good thing, is that, he, that he's a pragmatist. He'll find solutions that work on the ground and that keep the politicians happy. Um, going beyond those sectors, I mean, it's an interesting debate. I, I, I'm not a kind of economic purist insofar as I, I would advocate um, 100% coverage of, of the ETS, certainly in the short term. Um, there, there is, as, as you alluded to earlier, there's, a, there's an effort-sharing regulation that covers the, the whole non-traded sector at the EU level. So it's not the case that if you're not in the ETS that you're not regulated from a climate change point of view. It's just um, those targets are then left to member states to determine the best way to implement them in, in a way that's locally um, most appropriate. So, so in theory, every sector apart from shipping um, within Europe is regulated um, from a, from a climate change perspective, it's just then this question of, um, you know, efficiency uh, from a cost point of view and the role that competition can play in, in driving down the emissions as quickly as possible. Um, I think, though, I, I do agree that the carbon absorption side of it is, is where you'll start to straddle a lot of those discussions. So finding a way as part of this bigger holistic strategy to implement um, net zero will be really important for work like yours. Shipping, it keeps coming up. Shipping actually contributes a very substantial amount of, of, of carbon. I mean, it's somewhere around 5% globally, something like that, isn't it? And there is a new, is it Poseidon, as a Poseidon program? Is that, um, is that something that you've been looking at for reducing shipping emissions? Uh, I'm not familiar with Poseidon, but the, the reason that shipping isn't currently part of the ETS is that it's, it's such a global sector. Um, you know, you'll have a, a, a ship that's been... Um, built in one country, flagged in another, the, the crew are from a, a third country, the cargo is from a whole host of, of different countries. So there's a huge amount of split incentives um, in terms of how you reduce emissions in the sector, uh, as well as the usual kind of technological issues. Um, but because of that global nature, it was agreed that it wouldn't fall into the Paris Agreement, it doesn't fall into the EU ETS, it's instead left to the UN's shipping body, the, the International Maritime Organisation, to find a solution. And they have been making incredibly slow progress it's going in the right direction it's just far far too slow so that's why we're seeing now 
political pressure to, to do more on shipping. Um, I think, it, as I said before, it'll be an interesting exercise for the ETS, given that it's very difficult to regulate outside of territorial waters. Potentially, but I think that would just apply to the goods rather than the, ship, the ship's emissions themselves, but we'll see. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. The other big emitter is agriculture. And the IPCC report stating it's 25 to 37% of global emissions. Why doesn't ETS apply to agriculture? La France Profonde. <laughs> Why? Is there? A, is there? A, do, you, do you wish to come in on that? I like the, I like you the lived, person you with lived policy in experience to tell yeah. us why. I think um, so. There are practical difficulties. Certainly, uh, when the EU ETS was born, um, offsets uh, from um, uh, well, annex two countries, uh, essentially developing countries, were allowed into the system in limited quantities, but uh, uh, land use and land use change and forestry were not allowed. And the main reason for that is. Um, uh, being able to assess the permanence of the emissions reduction. Now, the, the whole system of uh, UN offsetting is um, uh, has its own uh, uh, issues. Um, ironically, the least popular were the industrial gases, um, but yet they were the m- most obviously additional um, uh, uh, methodologies uh, to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the problem with uh, forests, for example, is there were uh, a sub- uh, a section of offsets called temporary offsets. And of course, if you have a temporary offset, um, um, it's not really an offset um, because the risk that the tree falls down, gets chopped down, uh, or is burned down uh, is sufficiently high that um, it's not considered to be permanent. Um, so, uh, my understanding of why agriculture is not involved is, is related to the, is, the permanence. Rachel, is there any chance that agriculture could be brought into the system? I can't see it happening, at least in the short term. Um, it's, it's As well as all the technical reasons, it's, it's also hugely political. As soon as you suggest to a minister that there's the, the chance of a, a measure like this impacting food prices or being perceived as telling people what they should be eating in terms of meat versus vegetarian diets, you, you will see them run away screaming immediately. So um, I think, you know... It, it, it's obviously the, the political mindset that, that may change um, over time. And we are, you know, we did see in the, in the European elections, the Greens win a lot more seats who would be happy, very happy to push this kind of approach. But um, certainly in the short to medium term, I can't see it being on the table. A last couple of questions. Yep, here, sorry, Mike. Mike Wilkins from S&P Global Ratings. My question really is going back to... Um, the carbon market sort of glory days of 2008, 2009, 2010, when everybody was very hopeful about a high carbon price. And that actually had a knock-on effect in terms of growth in carbon trading and in financial institutions setting up their own trading desks and the whole industry building up, building up on the back of that. And then it kind of died off as the carbon price crashed. I keep on hearing now that things seem to be going back up again. I'm just wondering, Louis, you're, you're, you've been involved in this in a long time. And, well, all of you have. Do you, do you see that happening again, or do you think once bitten, twice shy? Um, so I think the, the, the main reason the banks pulled out was because they pulled out of commodities generally. And they pulled out of commodities generally because the regulations became uh, too restrictive, such that they had to hold a certain amount of capital, which made trading commodities uneconomic uh, for the banks. Um, uh, that's why they pulled out of commodities, that's why they pulled out of carbon, just on the, on the back of that. Um, uh, 
the glory days, as you refer to them, I remember them well, actually. I had, uh, I had a team of three people that were fully occupied trading all day, uh, carbon emissions of some description or another. And those carbon emissions were those offsets I mentioned, CERs, and they were EU allowances. And, um, uh, but that's the important difference. Well, there's well, two important differences. One is the banking sector has been um, held back from being involved in commodities generally. And the second important difference was uh, the glory days of the offsetting world. So back in 2008 and onwards, uh, companies uh, in the emissions trading scheme could use cheaper offsets instead of EU allowances up to a certain percentage. So uh, the average is 11% across Europe. Um, and uh, if you could use those cheaper offsets, then there were companies that were very happy to specialise in, and, and Julia's mentioned that she's done that herself um, when she started out in carbon, to go out across the world and find those emissions reduction projects and bring them home uh, and sell them for a profit. Now, uh, so the banks at that point were happily buying from companies like Gazprom. In fact, I bought from Gazprom at Barclays. Um, and uh, we sold to our customers, because we had customers all across Europe, uh, and they were facilitating those transactions. And there was a second market to trade, because the price of CERs was independent from that of EU allowances to a degree. So those glory days were down to the market actually being, for argument's sake, twice the size that it is today. Um, will they come back? Well, uh, the higher carbon prices have led to some banks recruiting carbon traders again. Um, so Morgan Stanley, long been out, uh, recruited one of my uh, former colleagues um, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago. And so we are seeing interest come back, but because of that regulation, it looks like more of that carbon trading interest is coming from hedge funds as opposed to the banks. So the hedge funds in it for hedging their exposure, literally, to uh, uh, equities investments in fossil fuels, um, or... Um, looking to just turn a speculative profit. I don't know, Julie, do you have any extra comments about whether this is coming back? I mean, you've yeah. kept your job at Gazprom and you've, yes. and, you're, and you've come into carbon trading the last two years full-time. Yeah, exactly. What a change. Yeah, we were, we were a team of 30 in the heydays, um, running around the world, um, sourcing CERs. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say, um, you know, the activity has returned, but in a different form. Um, as Louis said, um, more in terms of uh, fund investments. I think the, you know banks are very busy at the moment um, selling various trading ideas uh, to their clients. Um, you know, quite often in in, in terms of uh, option structures um, uh, on EUAs. Um, I know that there's a lot. There's a tremendous amount of of options interest on EU allowances at the moment, which is a, a nice way of expressing. Um, well, not not such a. You can. It's cheaper in a way to buy uh, an option structure rather than simply buying an EU allowance. It's less risky, um, so, so, so it can be a quite a favoured um, trading structure. So we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. But I think you could also actually argue now with the um, reduction, um, well, the slightly smaller uh, teams in the banks now is that. Actually, with industrials, they're they're a bit of a, a black hole. We don't really know what they're doing, um, and that's really quite an important um, uh, trading signal to the market. Um, you know, are these industrials holding on to their excess EUAs, or are they selling them? Um, and the only way, really, to find that out is to uh, is to trade with them. So, um, uh, you know, we we have uh, several industrial customers uh, that I interact with. So I get my signals from them, but it's um, I, I feel like a lot of that is, is still untapped. 
Okay, one last question. Yep. Hi there, uh, Fiona Quinlan from the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the point that was mentioned earlier about carbon taxation. Um, so I guess at the time that the ETS was being established, my understanding was that actually a lot of economists would have argued that taxation was uh, potentially a more efficient way to run things and might have gotten around some of the uh, challenges that we talked about. Um, just be interested to know your thoughts on potentially uh, whether there's a role for taxation in the EU, maybe as a supplement to ETS. Or... Okay, let, let me ask each of you that question. Rachel first. Um, an, an, an EU carbon tax to replace the ETS? No, I just I don't think that the, the votes are there when you've got countries like Poland and, and Hungary around the table. They would always veto it. Um, as a supplement, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see where the border tax um, discussions go as a, as a way to combat the, the risks of carbon leaking. But the point about taxation within the EU is it is a it has to be by consensus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So every member state has a veto, and that's why it's always very, very difficult. So on something as contentious as climate change, you would never, you would never really find that. Louis. Um, so the, the problem with tax is you don't establish a cap on the emissions. Uh, and the problem with the tax is it doesn't react to economic changes. So if there's a recession, tax doesn't tend to go down. Um, just at the point where industry would need it to go down. And uh, there are, I, I, could, I could give you a long list of arguments why tax would be better than emissions trading. Certainly um, if you don't cover the whole economy um, and if you, um, uh, if, you want to, uh, if you want to promote... So tax is carbon pricing. Putting a price on carbon is absolutely essential to have the impact that um, we want uh, to change people's behaviour. Because you're not going to get people to reduce emissions by asking them to wear a hair shirt. You're going to get them to change behaviour because things become too expensive. Um, uh, and so there is a, there's a, the IMF came out last week and said uh, the world needs a $75 a tonne tax and we can actually hit 1.5 degrees. And that's a shocking amount of money if you look at where the carbon price is today in Europe at 26 euros and in northeastern United States, $6, right? and in the rest of the world, zero. Um, uh, but if you recycle that money, um, uh, uh, that, would, um, that would go a long way. Taxes are a, a, a great, and I would argue in certain circumstances they are um, better. Um, but if you want economic efficiency and you want to hit a cap, you have to have cap and trade. Okay, well, let, I'm not going to ask that question of Julia because she's a carbon trader and one assumes that uh, taxes are lower down her list of priorities. But I am going to ask her to look ahead at carbon trading two or three years. Uh, where do you see, given all the various political pressures coming from one side or another, where do you see your business two or three years from now? And then I'm going to ask the same question of both Rachel and Louis. Julia first. Um, well, I mean, my... My business, in terms of uh, in terms of my job, I think um, you know will be it'll be very interesting uh, to see over the next uh, year or so, you know, how ambitious the the EU actually is, uh, you know, in, in in driving towards this net neutrality by 2050, um, and you know it will, you know, once the the caps made tighter or you know new policies are introduced. Um, I believe we will, uh, you know, we will see a significantly higher EUA price. Um, at which point, um, you know, my job will keep being secure because um, my colleagues will need to know what's going on. Um, you know, and it's it, it looks to be an interesting um, next one year because you know year on year we've seen 
such a marked difference in uh, in terms of behavior from funds. Uh, we've seen a drastic change in, in the actual balances year on year. Um, so the market is ripe for a move up again. It's, it's, we just need a couple of more signals to come in, and, and I, I think we're off again. Do you think that there is any chance for a change of attitude in the U.S.? I mean, you, you, you may well have a, a, a Democratic president. You may well have... Well, that, that is what we need, I think. Well, leaving, leaving aside whether you need it or not, you're very likely to... You know, the Democratic candidate is going to be Elizabeth Warren, almost certainly. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has to have a 50% chance at least of beating Trump. Um, is there any... And you, probably, you may well have a Democratic sweep in Congress. Is there any chance that there will be a change in U.S. policy? I, I mean, the, the only way I think is. May, may I just add, I, 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 I'm not American and I do not really know You're anything about US politics. No. <laughs> no, I'm from Finland. <laughs> well, that I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> but, uh, but, but really, I mean, the, the, the market change that we've seen you know, between Obama and Trump, I, I think the only way that uh, the US are going to push into this more seriously is you know, a change in, uh, in the party in, in control. Rachel, Europe. Europe um, and investors. So, I mean, I, I'd agree with Julia's kind of assessment of where the, the policy is likely to be going and the, the signals from an investment perspective will be incredibly important with all of that. So um, where I'd like to see it in the next couple of years is, um, you know, Europe will be hopefully agreeing at the end of December a, a net zero target for 2050 and then in 2021 bringing forward a lot of legislation to implement that um, subject to that legislation as we've discussed being a, you know a, a proper robust holistic uh, strategy that that really uh, gives a, a concrete and investable plan as to how you achieve um, such a challenging target then you will start to see private capital um, unlocked at much uh, greater volumes to, to help to um, finance that transition. So that's very much what I'll be advocating for in, in Brussels over the coming months and years. Louis, the final word is with you. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, I'm not optimistic that the EU will get its act together and broaden the scope of the EU ETS anytime soon, and that um, is utterly depressing because we will continue to not have a price on carbon for many things, and we won't. Uh, we will. It will just make reaching our goal more expensive. Um, but an interesting change, if you like. I mean, offsetting of uh, corporate offsetting has been around for donkey's years. Um, uh, there has been an, uh, a, I wouldn't say vibrant, but an offsetting market for um, uh, a good 15 years, if not more. Um, what we're increasingly seeing is companies that are not regulated by their government uh, or by the European Commission um, or European Union. Um, uh, taking action nonetheless. Uh, and one of the things we haven't talked about, I, I mentioned international trading and I can't see a global international emissions trading scheme happening um, possibly ever, but uh, under Article 6 of the Paris Accords, there is the possibility for countries to uh, trade with each other to help um, uh, meet their uh, domestic targets. Um, so uh, I do hold out a little bit of hope that there will be some international trading. Um, and if there's not international trading, um, uh, curiously, with offsetting, if you, if you want to sell your offset uh, outside of your country, you need your government's permission to do it um, after, you, um, after your government accepts a target under the Paris Accords. Uh, so uh, um, in, in, there is, 
increasing interest to offset from corporations not regulated, and there is increasing potential regulation on countries being able to export their offsets, uh, such that, uh, uh, quite bizarrely possibly, through the back door, uh, citizens and corporations acting privately will cause there to be some form of global uh, emissions market. And I, I, I use the word very loosely because it wouldn't be a single price and a single target, and it would be quite a, uh, quite a wide variety of different um, uh, of things happening all at the same time. But I see a price being put on carbon um, uh, happening with or without government assistance uh, or regulation. Uh, and that in itself is an extremely exciting prospect. Okay, on that moderately optimistic note, can I thank all of you for coming? Can I thank LIBF again for hosting this? And in particular, can I thank our speaker? Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Send an email to podcast at libf.ac.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Have a great day.